Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23 this morning, the, the last section there of chapter 1. So Ephesians chapter 1. As you're turning there, let me, let me just begin by saying, I've yet to meet the Christian who prays as much as they ought to. I've yet to meet the Christian who finds prayer easy and effortless. In my experience and and in my interactions with other Christians, prayer is one of those things that we know we ought to do. No Christian doubts that he or she should pray. I mean, we read books, we take seminars, we, we listen to others, yet we continue to struggle to do something as simple as communicate with our God. If you've ever been discouraged by your prayer life or your lack thereof, if you've ever been discouraged by your inability to pray, your inability to find time to pray, if you can't remember the last time you prayed, maybe that's you here this morning, can't remember the last time you prayed. If that's you, the sermon this morning is for you. And the sermon this morning is for me because I find myself in that group. Now, don't pretend to believe that this sermon is going to transform your prayer life. So so don't hear me say, this is the silver bullet, I have the secret. I don't. But I do believe that in these verses, in verses 15 through 23 of Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul gives us, by way of example, some aids to prayer. I think we can learn prayer from Paul here in these verses. I think in these verses we have, if you will, a, a access, all access into the Apostle's prayer closet. So he tells us what he prays for when he prays for people. We learn the specifics, and we'll see... In his prayers here in Ephesians 1, Paul's primary desire in praying for others, I mean, this is, this is instructive. The main thing that he prays for is that, that these Christians might know God. I mean, that's his basic prayer. That they may fo- more fully and more completely know God. Paul's primary concern for others isn't health-related. It's not life-circumstance-related. It isn't primarily any of those things. Paul wants others to know God, and I'm convinced he wants them to know God because, he's right, isn't he, a deeper knowledge of God changes everything. A deeper knowledge of God changes every circumstance and situation. Not necessarily the specifics of it, but how you view them is changed the more that you know God, which is why my hope this morning is that we might learn to pray with the Apostle Paul. So let's read our verses, verses 15 through 23. You can follow along as I read. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, um, but if you have an English translation, you should be able to follow along um, as I read. So beginning in verse 15, I'm going to read through the end of chapter 1. So Paul writes, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ." When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, that is God, put all things under his feet and gave him, that is Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness 
of him who dwells, who fills all in all. Let's pray as we begin this morning. God, this morning I pray that we might grow in our knowledge of you. Lord, teach us through your word. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts, transform us. Lord, we confess we want to know you more. And so I pray that you would give us an increasing recognition of your great love towards us. Give us an increasing recognition of the great hope to which you've called us. Give us an increasing recognition of your great power that is at work in us and toward us. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so here, here's the outline. So we've got verses 15 through 23. And there's really just, just two sections. There's two points that, that we're going to look at. So in in verses 15 through 19, we're going to see Paul's prayers. So Paul begins there in 15 through 19. He lists, here's what I'm praying for you. And then verse 19, he says, I'm praying that you'll know God's power. And then verses 20 through 23, he expounds on examples of God's great power. So there's, there's three requests, and the third request is expounded in verses 20 through 23. So that's the outline. So that's what we're going to look at. That's how we're going to walk through these verses. So let's begin there first, verses 15 through 19, we see Paul's prayers. So Paul's prayer is there in verse 15. Notice before you even get to a first request, notice there Paul gives the motivation for his praying. So you see there verse 15, for this reason, most translations say, maybe yours says therefore, if you have the NIV, it says therefore. And so what Paul does here is to the beginning, for this reason, he's, he's attaching his prayers with what came before, verses 3 through 14. So for this reason, all that I've said in verses 3 through 14 is why I'm praying this way. There's a connection between 3 through 14 and 15 through 23. And so in verses 3 through 14, Paul mapped out the plan, God's overarching plan for all, all the saints for all time. So he said, here's the, God's plan for all those who are in Christ Jesus. And we saw in verse 3 specifically that every Christian is blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So by nature of being in Jesus, Paul says you're blessed with every blessing you could ever think of being blessed with because you're in Christ. And so we saw that how God works in this world, that, that God pours out his grace. He lavishes his people with grace. He lavishes sinners with, with grace, and he blesses them far beyond what they deserve. And then in verses 15 through 17, this understanding of God in verses 3 through 14, coupled with Paul hearing about Christians, about saints, he then is prompted to pray these things for these people. So there's a connection. So he says, here's how God works in this world. So, Ephesians Christians, whenever I heard about you, I prayed in light of what I know about God working in the world. So there's a connection between how he prays and what he laid out in verses 3 through 14. And so Paul's praying in light of God's work in the world. And the first thing Paul does is he gives thanks for them. He gives thanks for them. Do you see there in verse 15? For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And he doesn't mean that his thanks is directed at them. He's not telling them thank you, right? That's clear. That's a clear implication. He's not thanking them. Paul's thanking God for what's happening among them. He does so, he gives thanks to God because God is the one who's bringing about this fruit, their faith and their love for the saints. And so Paul hears about that and says, I've been thanking God for what's happening among you. The sovereign God who's praised in verses 3 through 14 is the same sovereign God who's thanked in verses 15 through 17. Because, simple point, God's the one who's making this fruit grow. God's the one who's working in their lives. Only 
a God can convert lost people. Only God can generate love for the saints. Only a sovereign God can do the things that Paul is thanking him for doing. And Paul's prayer makes that clear. If you don't think that that's Paul's intention here, ask yourself, who is Paul thanking? When he says, I give thanks for you, who's he thanking if not God? Clearly, he's thanking God because God's the one who's done this. He thanks God for working in their lives. And so here right at the outset, before we even look at the first request of Paul, we ought to recognize that this should be true of every Christian. Let me simply ask you, if you're here and you're a Christian, have you witnessed or seen any spiritual growth in your own life recently? Have, have you seen spiritual fruit in your life? Have you grown over, over the past five years? Think about where you were five years ago. Have you, have you noticed or observed any, any growth? Any growth in your love for God or your, your love or understanding of his word? Have you noticed small changes maybe in your attitude, your relationships? Have you noticed any changes in your life that, that all of these I mentioned are, are changes that honor the Lord? Have you noticed any of them in your life over the past week, month, year, five years, decade? Have you noticed anything? If so, you ought to give thanks to God for it. You ought to just say, thank you, God. Because only he is able to bring about the change that you've seen. You're not, at the end of the day, responsible. Yes, I recognize human responsibility. But at the end, but at the end of the day, I'm dependent upon the Lord. If God isn't the wind beneath my wings, I'm not flying anywhere. But that's not all. Just like we ought to give thanks to God for any growth in our own lives, the same is true for any growth that we observe in others' lives, or even growth we hear about. In the same way that we give thanks to God when we recognize His quiet and effective work in our own lives, so also we thank God when we hear of His work in others. And so, Christian, when you see God's clear working in others, or when you hear about God's clear working around the world, you ought to thank God. Right? Christians, we ought to have an, impulsive, an impulsiveness to thank God. We ought to impulsively thank Him. But we ought to give thanks for more than just food on our table. When we say give thanks, it should be an exhaustive category, a comprehensive category, not just food. I mean, just, just maybe, this is, maybe this is news to you, but did you realize God is actually involved and works in our world? God is actually involved. We don't live in an imminent frame where there, there's no supernatural activity. No, we live in a world in which God is active. Did you know that God actually changes people? He, he actually gives fruit, spiritual fruit. Do you know that God actually sustains hope, transforms lives? Right? This is what God does in, in this world, actually, in, in real time. And when we recognize this, we ought to rejoice and give thanks to him for it. And so, right now, I just want to stop and do a little exercise. I want you to think about something that you've witnessed personally in your own life, something you've, you've witnessed in, in the, the life of a brother or a sister, a, a Christian brother or sister, something you've read in a missionary support letter, maybe a, a reliable news source. You've heard of, of something in the world that, that, you, that God is clearly at work. I just want you to think of that, someone or something that God has done where he's been clearly at work. And I want you right now to just stop. We're going to pause, and I just want you to thank God for whatever it is. Just give thanks to him. Thanksgiving ought not to be a stranger to Christian lips. 
And that ought to be a, 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 an awkward exercise, right? I understand we've not done that before in this setting, so maybe it's a little awkward, but, but giving thanks to God should, should come naturally from our lips because he's at work. If you, if you couldn't think of anything, maybe I put you on the spot, but if you couldn't, any, couldn't think of anything and nothing came to mind, I would say to you in love, open your eyes, just open your eyes. God is at work in this world, and as his people, we ought to give thanks to him when, when we observe it. Thanksgiving ought to characterize Christians. One last point before moving on to Paul's request. Notice Paul isn't giving thanks for the Ephesians to the Ephesians for anything that he's received from them. Right? It's not like the, the wedding registry where people gave you gifts. You're like, all right, fine, I've got to write all these thank yous because they blessed us, so I've got to write them. That's not the case here. He's thanking them for nothing he's received. He hasn't benefited from what he's thanking God for. His thanksgiving is, ga- is based on God's powerful work in their lives, something that Paul had only heard about, it seems. And his impulse is when he hears, I'm thanking God for them and what God has done in their lives. Well, let's look here at verse 16. So let, let's get through these, these lists. What, what are Paul's prayer requests? Not only does he thank God for them, for their faith and their love, but he also prays for them. And his specific prayers, his requests take up the rest of our passage. So uh, his first request, verse 17. Second request, we'll see verse 18. Then third request, we'll see verse 19. So the first request he makes, there in verse 17. His first request, verse 17. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And so Paul prays very simply that they would grow in their knowledge of God. That's what he means there that they would grow in their knowledge of God. He asked that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I mean, the NIV, if you have the NIV, it says it explicitly, and I think it's right. It says, I keep asking that you may know him better. That's the the crux of his request, that, that they may know God better. Paul's praying that the Christians would know God. And according to Paul, notice the only way that they're going to grow in their knowledge of God, it's not having the right study Bible, it's not listening to the right preacher, the only way that they're going to grow is by the work of the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. So, so do you see, most translations are going to capitalize the Spirit there, that he may give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. His, his point is, only the Holy Spirit is the one who can do this. And so he prays for the Spirit to be given to them, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Or to put it another way, Paul, knowing that this cannot happen apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul thus prays that the Spirit will grant to them wisdom and reveal insights to them about the glorious God whom they now serve. That's his prayer. And so this request, which involves spiritual wisdom and revelation, it points back, if if, look up there in verse 8, then verse 8, when Paul's laying out this, this blessing that God has blessed all Christians. In verse 8, he says that in Christ, God had lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. In all wisdom and insight, God has blessed us. And so the connection here, similar words, conveying the same idea. Paul says, what God has done, blessed you with all in all wisdom and insight. Paul's praying for God to do what he's already done. Do you see the connection? God's already blessed every person in Christ with, with all wisdom and insight, lavished his grace upon them in all wisdom and insight. And now he's saying, I'm praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and insight. So Paul spent verses 3 through 14 expounding the riches of God's grace to all the saints. And in light of that, Paul prays for the saints in accordance with what God has already done for them. 
And so Paul's intercession is simply a prayer for the realization of the blessings in verses 3 through 14. What God's already done, I, I pray that you would understand it fully. I, I, know, I pray you'd grow in it better, more, more comprehensively. And so Paul isn't asking for God to give them new or fresh revelation or wisdom. And if that's what you're looking for, you're never going to get it. Right? God has already revealed himself. Instead, Paul's asking that the Christians might experience an ever-growing, always-increasing comprehension of the blessings that they already have. They don't need more blessings. They already, they've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing. What they need and what Paul prays for, what we need and what we ought to pray for, is that we would recognize or understand or comprehend just how great and merciful and loving and gracious our God is, which is the truths that are laid out in verses 3 through 14. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And so point of application, I simply would, would pause here. First point of application is say, are you here this morning and do you desire to be blessed by God? We all walk around and say, God bless you, God bless you. Do you really mean that? Do you want God to bless you? Do you want to know that God cares for you and is for you and loves you? Do you want to know that this morning? I'm here to tell you that in light of this passage, you can only know and be guaranteed of God's blessings to you through Jesus Christ. Only if you're in Jesus can you ensure that you're blessed by God. It's only in Christ. It's all about Jesus. And so for the person who says, I I, I want God to bless me, and you want to give to the church, you want to attend church, you want to do good things, that's never going to ensure God's blessing on you. In fact... To be honest, that is only ensuring God's curses upon you. If you're trying to earn God's favor, you're going to fail every time. You're blessed by God only in and through Jesus Christ. And so if you want to be blessed by God, put your faith in Jesus. So if you're here, you haven't put your faith in Jesus. If you desire to be blessed by God, I command you, put your faith in Jesus because in him you will be guaranteed blessing in every spiritual blessing in Christ. I mean, if, if, if you're going to, to God for blessings, but you're not going through Jesus, you're on a fool's errand. You're like the person who goes to Chick-fil-A on Sunday. You're not going to get it. Or maybe it's Monday. You're like the one who goes to Chick-fil-A for a hamburger. You're not going to get it. Blessings only come to people through Jesus. And so I would call you, if you're here, you're not a Christian, you're not putting your faith in Jesus, I would call you, I would command you, I would urge you to turn from yourself, from your sin, and put your faith in Jesus. And be found in Him, and in Him, with Him, be found with every spiritual blessing. And second, shifting gears a bit, if you're here and you aren't a Christian, do you, ever, do you ever wonder how to pray for one another? Maybe a better first question, if you're a member here, did you know that you're supposed to pray for one another? Did you know that if you're a member of this church, part of the church covenant, the membership covenant of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, part of what you agree to is that you're going to pray for one another. Maybe that's news to you this morning. You need to hear that. You're responsible for praying for other members of this church. And so some of you just need to know that. You should pray for one another. In fact, I think one of the the greatest purposes or functions of our membership directory 
and why we want to keep it as updated as possible is that that's a great prayer guide. Pick, pick a page a month or a page a day or a page a week and just pray for your brothers and sisters. And if you commit to do that, you probably will soon ask, well, what am I supposed to pray? Well, here, application, something you can always pray for other Christians is what Paul prays here. And what he prays for is something that every Christian who's alive on this planet is always in need of. Pray that your brothers and sisters would grow in their knowledge of God. Pray that. Pray that God would give them by his spirit revelation and wisdom so that they might know him better. Pray that. Pray that for everyone. You can pray that for me every day if you want. Pray for one another. Pray that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. I mean, I wonder, would you be willing to pray that for a fellow church member this week? Maybe in your Sunday school class? Pray for your members this week. Or, maybe this is awkward, look beside you. Pray for the person sitting on both sides of you this week. Pray that prayer for them. If you don't know their name, right, here's an excuse. Ask them their name. Say, I'm going to pray for you. What's your name? And pray for them. Pray for one another. And Paul models prayer for us. So this is a great thing for us to learn to pray for one another. Well, then let's move next to his second request there in verse 18. So he prays that they would know God more better, that they grow in their knowledge of him. Second, verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And so do you see the request there? It's, it's sandwiched there in the middle of verse 18. He says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So Paul prays simply that they may know the hope that they've been called to. So he said, I, I pray that you may know the great hope to which you've called. And then he clarifies what is that great hope, the riches of his, that is God's glorious inheritance in the saints. So again, he, he's reverting back to something he said in verse 11. So remember in verse 11, look, look up at verse 11, where Paul says that Christians have been made an inheritance to God. Right, so some of the translations don't word that as clear, but, but his point is that in Christ we have become God's possession. And that Christians, those who are in Christ, are God's inheritance. Remember we said that last week, and, and that's something that has already happened, isn't it? In Christ you have been called to God, possessed by God. And here Paul is saying, asking that the believers would know the hope that's, that's theirs because of that. I pray that you would know your great hope, that you are God's now and forever. That's what he's praying. And so if you're here and you're Christian, right, you have hope. We all want hope, don't we? We all want hope. Well, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you have a sure hope. But it's not because, it's not because things are going well in your life. It's not because you got promoted. It's not because you and your wife aren't fighting right now. It's not because your kids are successful or your grandkids are successful. It's not because you have health. It's not because of those or any other reason that you have a sure hope. None of those circumstances are a solid foundation for hope. They're going to change. They're going to fluctuate. Paul says, God says here, you have hope, Christian, because you belong to him. And if you're in Christ, that is a sure foundation for your hope because that, brother, sister, can never change. No matter what, no matter what, you lose your job, hope secure. You lose a loved one, hope secure. You lose your own life, hope secure. No matter what, Christian, 
you don't lose God. You are His now and forever. That's hope, isn't it? That's sustainable hope, lasting hope. If you're here, you're not a Christian. If your hope fluctuates day to day, circumstance to circumstance, I I would again point you to Jesus. In Him is true hope because in Him you are claimed to be God's now and forever. Christians, those in Christ, we have that hope. And so Paul, here in his second request, is simply praying that the Christians in Ephesus would know that hope more fully. Did you notice here in, in, at the beginning of this verse, there in verse 18, how he, how he opened this? How does Paul envision this prayer being fulfilled? What, what's got to happen for, them to, to, for this request to be fulfilled in them? You see what Paul says? Having the eyes of your heart opened. There in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And just like before, this is a, a request. We can't do this ourselves. This is a request for supernatural power, spirit-sourced activity. Paul's saying, I pray that God would open the eyes of your heart. And he only does this through his spirit. It's as if Paul is, is praying that the lights would go on for these Christians, right? Maybe your lights have been off for a long time. The spirit can flip the switch. Pray that he would. If you have a a loved one who the lights are out, pray that the Spirit would flip the switch and open the eyes of their hearts, that they may know the hope to which they've been called. That's Paul's prayer here. So his first two requests, that you would grow in your knowledge of God. Second request, that you would know the hope to which you've been called. Third request, Paul turns to the third and final request there in verse 19, that they might know what is the immeasurable greatness of His, that is God's power towards us. Notice now Paul includes himself towards us who believe. And so Paul wants the believers, the Christians in Ephesus, to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards them. This third request is that God will reveal to these believers an awareness of the incomparably great power of God working in their lives. So in order to show this, so he says, I, I pray that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you. That's his prayer. And in order to show this, he's going to say, here is the greatest display of God's power that's ever happened on this earth. And that power that's exemplified in these examples I'm going to give in verses 23-23, that's the power that I want you to know that's in work in your life. So he's praying that Ephesians would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards them. And in order to remind them of God's great power, he doesn't go to creation He doesn't go to some other mighty act, the the, the parting of the Red Sea. He goes to the resurrection of Jesus. Because in Paul's mind, that is the greatest, the most majestic display of God's power. Although at the end of the day, an all-powerful God, there is no level of difficulty, is there? He can do anything, but Paul points to the resurrection of Jesus and what happens in subsequent stages as a display of God's power. And as we look at, at, at how he works it out, we have to remember that this focus on God's power, it's not an inherent power, some cosmic display of force. This isn't, I just, I just pray you know God's power that's out in the world, that, that's just there. Paul says, I want you to know that God's power, that God's almighty power is specifically at work in your life, Christian, is available for your life, Christian. So it's a very practical prayer. 
that they would know the power of God that's at work in them, toward them who believe. So let's look, verses 20 through 23, at the immeasurably great power of God that is exemplified in the resurrection. So Paul points, in, in, we're at section 2, or point 2, God's immeasurably great power, and Paul's going to give three displays of this power. So first, verse 20. Paul reminds them that the power that is, work, that is at work in their lives is the same power that was at work in the resurrection of Christ. You see there, verse 20. What is the immeasurable, so beginning in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, verse 20, example one, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So God's power was on display when a dead man, hear me, a truly dead man, a lifeless body, started breathing again. Got up out of the tomb, took off grave clothes and folded them nicely and set them right there where it once was laying. He once was laying. And then he walked with physical legs out of the tomb. And so Paul says that takes power for that to happen. I mean, do you see? That's a pretty powerful display, right? Someone who's dead is made alive, physically alive. That's powerful. But, but even more than that display of power, the power of God that was displayed in the resurrection is primarily seen in the fact, by the fact, that in and through the resurrection of Jesus, God reversed death. God undid the curse of sin. He, he removed and fixed the destruction that sin had brought about. The permanent damage that sin had done, God undid. And he did this through the resurrection of Jesus. God made a promise to everyone in the resurrection of Jesus, to everyone that would hear, this is the beginning. This is the first fruits. This is a sign of what's to come to all those people who are in him. Like him, first him, then them. And so he's making a promise, just as I raised my son, just as the mighty power that was on display in the resurrection of my son, that same power is going to ensure that on that coming day, when all the brothers and sisters of my son, when it's time, they too are going to be raised to new life. That's power. And so the fact that Jesus was raised, the same power that raised him is going to raise his people one day. I mean, that's power, right? That's power. If you've laid a loved one to rest, don't fear. There's power that's going to be on display on that day when he or she is raised with new life. And so what Paul is, is having his audience know, his hearers know, what God would have us know is that the future resurrection, right, it is a final day. It's coming, and that day we will be raised. But but even better, it's already started now. It, it, it's an already, but not yet. There's this tension in Scripture. We've already been raised. Did you know that? If we're united to Jesus, we've already been raised. Not only that, we'll see in a second, we've also been raised with Jesus, and we've been seated at the right hand of the Father with Him. That's already happened, and it's still going to happen again. You see, it's already happened, but there's a day coming when it will be fully realized. 
And so if you're here and you're in Christ, your biography already has a resurrection. You've been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and you've been raised with Christ, and you live with Christ. You've already been raised. Your biography is already a death-to-life story. We'll see more about that next week. But Paul's point to the Christian is simply this. The same power that was at work in the resurrection of Jesus is at work in your life now and will be fully realized at the resurrection. But, but even now, the same power is at work. Second request, second display, sorry, second display of God's power, verses 20 and 21. So Paul reminds them, secondly, the power that is, work, that is at work in their lives is the same power that was at work in the exaltation of Christ. So God's immeasurably great power was at work not only when he raised Christ from the dead, but also when... Verse 20, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so God's power is on display in the, in the resurrection, but also in the exaltation, that Jesus was, was ascended into heaven and has a, an authority and a power that is unrivaled. I mean, it's necessary to distinguish between resurrection and exaltation. One commentator says this, the resurrection proclaims that he lives and he lives forever. The exaltation proclaims he reigns and he reigns forever. Both are necessary. Not only was he raised, but he was also exalted and given all authority, Matthew 28, Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. He's exalted with all power, all authority. And the power of God that brought forth both events is the same power that's at work in the life of the Christian. Again, Paul is connecting the events of Christ's life to the lives of the Christians. Because Christians are in Christ, not only have they been raised with him, but they've also been exalted with him. I mean, this is, we'll see this next week, Lord willing, but in Ephesians 2, if it, maybe it's on the same page in your Bible, but, but if you find Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 6, listen to what Paul says. In light of what we've just heard, listen to how this verbiage is the same. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive, raised us to life with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Verse 6, And not only has he made us alive with Christ, verse 6, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what, that's what Paul's saying here, and that's what he's saying in, in chapter 2. That we've been raised with Christ and we've been exalted with Christ. So the power that was at work in the life of Jesus is also at work in the life of the Christian. And the result of the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus is that now he occupies a position of unparalleled honor and universal authority. Jesus has been given a name, Philippians 2, above every name. Above every name. There's no rival. There's no power that is equal. There's no authority that can challenge it. Jesus has all authority and power. And for the believer, the one whose trust is in Christ, the one who's counted in him, this authority is assuring and comforting. We've sung it before. No power of hell, no scheme of man, what, can ever pluck me from his hand. Why? Because there's no power that can rival that, the power of our Lord. No power of hell, no scheme of man. Nothing can ever thwart or pervert or ruin the salvation that is yours in Christ Jesus. There's no rival power or authority. God's immeasurably great power is for you. 
God will ensure that you're going to make it to the end. He's got power. He's able to keep you. Did you know that? God will ensure that you are raised on that last day. And then finally, third, Paul reminds them, third display of the power of God, Paul reminds them that the power that does its work in their lives is the same power that was at work or that is at work in the supremacy of Jesus or of Christ, the sovereignty, the rule, the reign, the supremacy of Christ. Notice verses 22 and 23. They're in the middle of verse 22. And he, that is God the Father, put all things under his, that is Jesus, feet, and gave him, that is Jesus, as head over all things. To the church, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there are a few ways that this idea can be understood, but if you have the NIV, again, I think the, the, the way the NIV translates verse 22 and 23 is, is the idea that Paul is intending to communicate. So listen to how NIV translates those verses, and listen to the idea that he conveys through this. He says, And God placed all things under his feet, the same, same idea, and appointed him to be head over everything, preposition for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In other words, what I think Paul is saying here, the rule of Christ, the authority of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the subjection of all things to Christ, underneath Christ, is for the good of the church. And so he made him ruler of everything so that he could make promises to the church and that they could trust him. He has all authority, and that's good for his people, the church, which he's the head of the source of. We're his body. He is our our head, our leader. And so what Paul means in a similar vein to all that's come before is that God's power that's seen in the resurrection, the exaltation, in the supremacy of Christ over all things is a power that has no rival. There's no rival. As we move through Ephesians, we're going to see that, that God's power cannot be challenged by anything. No human character, no, no political power, no spiritual darkness. We're going to see in, in chapter 6, right, there's spiritual realities going on, but even though we don't know a lot about that, we do know that nothing is more powerful than God and His Son, Jesus. And so there's no darkness, there's no unknown realm that, that has authority over Christ. He is over all. And so we can be confident, we can be comforted, we can be assured that God's sovereign power is exercised for the good of his church to bring about this plan. So you wonder, how could all these promises and this this plan, this certain plan in verses 3 through 14, how can we know it's going to come about? We know it can come about and it will come about because of what God has done in Christ. And this is an amazing thought, and it's in light of this thought Coming all the way back to the beginning, we ought to pause and ask ourselves, why wouldn't we pray? Why wouldn't we pray in light of God's purposes? Why wouldn't we pray for His plans to be accomplished in our lives, in the lives of our brothers and sisters? This immeasurably great power offers us great incentive to pray. Great incentive to pray. And, and what better way to pray than in line with God's purposes and plans for us and all of creation? So, May we be people who, like Paul, pray in light of God's purposes for us, his people.